Welcome to Bow Talks, a podcast by Banking on Women, which is a student society at the University of Melbourne. We are dedicated to empowering, educating and encouraging our members in the financial and professional services industries. Bow would like to respectfully acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulon Nations, who are the traditional custodians of this land, on which we will be recording this podcast on. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi Joe. Um, we always like to start off by asking if you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're passionate about. Yeah, so I'm Joe Masters and I'm the Chief Economist at Baranchoe Capital and it's a job that I love. I've worked in a range of fields over time. So I started my career uh, as an economist in at Macquarie Bank and then I spent some time there doing currency strategy and FX sales and I had a bit of time at home with my children and then came back into economics at ANZ and then EY and, and now here at Baron Joey. Uh, what am I passionate about? Um, well, truly, I'm really passionate about becoming a better tennis player <laughs> and holidays and enjoying the summer. But in a work context, uh, I'm really passionate about making economics relevant and relatable. And I think that's something that hasn't been done very well in the past. Thank you. What initially drew you to the finance and economic sector? Did you always have a strong passion for economics or did this just come about at uni? Yeah, so it's not, it wasn't an early passion, um, to be honest. Uh, so look, there's probably a couple of things that happened. When I uh, finished school, I actually wanted to be a town planner hmm. and my dad said no. Uh, and the most painful thing is retrospectively, he was right. <laughs> uh, so then I was a bit of, oh, what will I do? And I've always been very good at economics. So that seemed like a good idea. So I did Echo Geo uh, as an undergrad. Uh, and then in terms of sort of finance and following that through, I, um, I grew up as an expat in Hong Kong. So I guess all my life I'd been surrounded by finance and trade and commerce. And in a society where there's lots of conversations around work and, and what happens. And when I was at uni, I interned in my uh, summers. Um, I'm very old. So the first year I interned at Lehman Brothers, which, of course, no longer exists. Uh, but then in my next few summers, I interned for a funds management company under an economist called John Greenwood. And he was the architect of the Hong Kong dollar peg, which oh, is wow. the most successful currency peg uh in history, I think, <laughs> or certainly in modern history. Um, and and I just loved the work with him and he published my first piece of research and it sort of rolled from there. So then when I finished my master's, obviously, um, you know, the most common path is to go into a, a government role, really, Treasury, RBA. Um, but, I, but I really had that taste for markets and I, I love financial markets. I love the collision of information and the speed with which they move. And so I went and worked in the economics department at, uh, at Macquarie, as I said. <laughs> wow. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about your unique career journey and just like the different roles you have been involved in, how I feel like not everyone would know a lot about what they specifically are? Yeah, sure. So um, as I said, my undergrad was actually um, a commerce arts degree in Echo uh, Geo. I got to the end of that and I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. Um, and and I got a, an opportunity to go to Sydney Uni and, and complete a master's. So, so I did that. Weirdly, my master's was very focused on microeconomics and then I've never really worked in the micro <laughs> space. So maybe that's a learning and a lesson that what you focus on and 
and pick it doesn't necessarily end up being being what 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 you'll do uh and I, and I guess as as you said if I think about those roles uh, you know my first role was economics uh at Macquarie and I actually worked on the international side so that's looking at economic trends um, and forecasting how economies will evolve, whether that's consumption or the housing market or um, net exports and also uh, into currencies and bond yields and then informing both um, the trading and sales desk at the bank so they can talk in an informed manner to their clients and also talking to clients directly um, around those trends to help make more informed investment decisions. And then because I'd worked on the international side, uh, that led quite nicely into the currency role. All different kinds of uh, financial products are different. You know, if we think about fixed income markets, they tend to look at Australia and the US. Uh, Equity markets, again, tend to look at domestic stocks and influences from the US. Whereas I think currencies are one of those markets that anything and everything can impact. Uh, you know, I remember waking up one morning and there'd been an earthquake in Ecuador and suddenly the currency is 100 points lower and you're trying to work out what's, you know, what's the connection it's through oil markets? What do oil markets mean? How does that flow to the US dollar? And currency markets have two sides, right? It's uh, So there's always at least two economies that you're thinking about and I, and I love that variety. Um, so, yeah, so currency strategy, I guess, is that level between economics and the traders Uh, so it's taking the economics and putting it into investable conclusions if you like and in effect I guess selling those trade ideas through into the client and then I did sales for a while which is taking that and selling it (laughs) into the client and working with the dealers and the traders to transact that in the best possible way Um, and it's a really it was a really exciting job um but it's also very all-consuming and it was pretty difficult to manage with a young family uh which is partly why i then rotated back into echo um yeah, and I, as i said i had a few years at home with, with my children which was i'm sure they'll be forever grateful for <laughs> maybe um and then uh yeah back into economics but looking at australia for anz um and then EY, which, you know, clearly is my only non-market role that I've had, but that was super interesting uh, because that's less about the day-to-day drum roll and more lifting your eyes to those big structural changes, demographics, energy transition and carbon uh, credits and um, uh, sort of deglobalisation and some of those sort of issues which do impact financial markets, but we probably spend a little bit less time thinking about them. So I learned a lot which was good. Did you know at university that there was such a diverse range of careers you could do with economics? No, not at all. So uh, when I left uni, as I said, most people went into government and then I knew lots of people in markets because of my exposure in Hong Kong. But uh, And actually, even in in my early career, I I guess the market piece was so all-consuming, I didn't think that much outside of it. But uh, where I really opened my eyes was probably when I was at EY, so <laughs> relatively recently. Uh, but, you know, there's health economists and equity economists and environmental economists. And so now I often say when I talk to students at school or at university, literally tell me something that you care about, an issue that you care about, and I'm pretty sure there's a connection with economics. And I haven't come across one yet that I can't say, well, economics helps you to solve that problem. And I guess the way I think about it is, and maybe this is a bit simplistic, but I think, you know, we teach history at school 
to learn from the past Mm -hmm. and ensure that we don't make the same mistakes again. We teach geography at school so that we understand the physical and social world that we live in. But we don't make economics compulsory. And yet economics is the policy that changes the world that you live in in order to ensure that you don't repeat the mistakes of the past. So I feel like in the curriculum there's a missing element there. 100%. Um, so you have lived and worked uh, internationally. Could you tell me a little bit about the different places you've lived and the greatest differences you've found? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've lived and worked in Hong Kong early in my career. Um, I've lived in uh, New Zealand. That was more when I was uh, at school and, and the last uh, last part of my schooling and my undergrad degree. And then, uh, you know, I've lived in Sydney for a long time. Uh, I think every city has something to offer. And there's pros and cons in, in every place that, that you've worked. Uh, and I also think that where you work can change. Uh, so, you know, Hong Kong was probably the most broad and open-minded and a collision of cultures. But I actually think that you see that in Sydney now much more so than... So I, so I think Sydney has become more cosmopolitan and the world more broadly is connected. But I do think there is value in ensuring that you're exposed to different ways of working and different cultures and maybe one way to express that. I remember a few years ago sitting on a panel and somebody asked me a question about what was the right taxation regime for Australia, which is a very big question to answer (laughs) in five minutes. But another economist was on the panel and he's Singaporean and he actually came in and said, you know, the right question is what sort of society do you want to live in? And then an economist will tell you what is the level of taxation that you need to fund that. And I think that's really interesting. So, you know, in Australia, we value um, universal health care, universal education. We care about intergenerational equity, housing affordability. Those big issues that I spend a lot of time thinking about aren't the same around the world necessarily in their priority list. So I think there's a lot of benefit ensuring that you're exposed to that, whether that's living somewhere else or whether that's um, ensuring that you work for an institution that gives you that exposure. Thank you. Also, across your career, how have you managed to balance the demands of professional success, family and friends? Um, What are your opinions and advice regarding the challenges faced across your career? Yeah, um, I mean, I don't know whether I've done it well or not. (laughs) Uh, My children still talk to me, so I feel like it's probably okay. So, look, it's tough. Um, The good news is, is... the workplace is becoming more flexible. Uh, the good news is that we're seeing um, fathers become more involved, I think, uh, than perhaps when, when I had my children. And we see that with the uptake of paternity leave, for example, which I think is amazing. Um, my, my number one advice, if I could go back and talk to myself when I first had my children and were balancing that family piece, is... Um, maybe just to lighten up a little bit and work out what's important. So, look, I often tell this story, you know, my, I have teenage daughters. My daughters don't make their beds. Their bathroom is a disgrace and their favourite dinner is breakfast dinner. And I've sort of resigned myself to the fact that that's okay and the thing that I value is actually spending time with them and engaging with them and the rest I just sort of try to let go. And I think for a long time, and I think women are really hard on themselves and they try to do everything when I think it's good to try to narrow it down. And look, I've been really fortunate to work in an industry that allows me to get some help uh, on the bits that I don't have time to do. So I'm very, very fortunate uh, to be able to do that. 
But I'm glad that you also raised friends because I think we focus a lot on children. Um, and increasingly we talk about responsibility of elderly parents as well. But maintaining a really strong friendship group is incredibly important for when times are tough and for anchoring you back in the real world and telling you when you're perhaps going a little bit too extreme in some part of your life. So I think friends are really, really important. Um, I play tennis every week and I absolutely love it. I wish I was better, as I said. <laughs> um, but I always sort of joke, half joke, the people that work with me can tell you if I haven't been able to play this week because I'm probably a bit edgy and a bit nasty. So, you know, I think through um, health and fitness is really important and I put friends sort of into that bucket as well. Thank I you. also always take all my annual leave every year. I'm a big holiday believer. I am too. <laughs> well, don't lose that. <laughs> now looking at the market and your role as an economist, could you give us a little bit of help as university students when we're analysing the economy domestically and globally and you're trying to gain an understanding and opinions, do you have any metrics or any maybe platforms that you think that as a young person you should follow to just develop your understanding? Yeah, great question. So I have this constant debate with my children and my comms manager about TikTok. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think for your generation, you're spoiled for choice, right? So really, I guess the question is, what is efficient? Like where can you go and be efficient to stay on top? And ensuring that you're uh, not just getting an echo chamber and that you're being challenged and, and being exposed. Um it's kind of hard to pull out one, but I am, I am a, you know, I think one that I would highlight is the Economist magazine. Um, you know, even they do like a little email. I think it's, I think it's free actually. That's the day in brief, and mm -hmm. it literally has four things, and and that'll cover off, you know, politics, economics, geopolitical risks, and also just weird and wonderful big structural things that are happening in the world. And I think it has a really nice global context. Um, so I, I do think that's important. Look, I think LinkedIn um, is also a really valuable source. And, you know, there's lots of really smart, interesting people that post really interesting content on LinkedIn. And I also think it's really important for your generation as they start to move out of university and into jobs. The first thing I do is one of the first things I do is look at people's LinkedIn um, pages. And I no one expects you to be generating content but it's interesting to see who people are following or perhaps what they've liked or what they've commented on or what they've shared so I think there's some great resources on there follow people that you that are experts in the fields that you're interested in or you want to learn more about thank you um, you often promote accessibility of economics and economic thinking as you mentioned before why do you think this is so important? And also with the knowledge that you have, what avenues do you think are the most effective to educate a wider audience, even people who don't plan to move into an economics career per se? Yeah, so I think it's important, as I said, because I think it's the tools that we use to change the world that we live in. Um, and so in that sense, it impacts everyone's life. And I think people get confused between economics and financial literacy. So lots of people will say, to me, do you want to come and talk to this group of girls about, you know, savings for a house? It's not, you know, economics, as you know, it's not really about that, right? So it's sort of that higher level. And I, and I also think it's so important in a country where voting is compulsory to try to be as informed as possible and the economy is a big part of that. Um, how do we do it? Look, it's not part of the curriculum at school, which I think is problematic. Uh, I sit on the committee for the Australian Business Economists and 
as a group, we all actively will go out to schools and talk to groups. Um, you know, I, I worry that we don't have good visibility on who we're visiting. You know, it's sort of a people come and ask. And the Reserve Bank uh, also have a program around um, economics uh, for young women and Indigenous Australians looking at who's studying economics and um, trying to get some sort of better balance in that, which I think is really important because, you know, your generation are the future policy makers and we want to have a diverse group of policy makers and thoughts and views in that, particularly in a post-pandemic world where we're facing some of these really big structural challenges as well as climate change and energy energy transition. So I think it's more important than ever. Um, I think the media do a reasonable job. I think there has been a shift more recently to have more diverse voices. And hopefully you've all seen, you know, we're putting equity economists out there and health economists and housing economists, whereas traditionally it's been very much market economists. So slowly but surely. <laughs> um, so looking more at the current situation in the market in Australia, with regards to the cash rate in the Reserve Bank of Australia, and they've just recently increased it again, I just wondered if you wondered if you could explain the current situation, including inflationary pressures, and where you think the RBA is heading over the next twelve months, or like the impact that this is going to have on not only the current situation but future. Sure. So currently, we have inflation is too high in our economy. Now we can measure that a variety of ways. But we actually enshrine it in a, an agreement between the Treasurer and the Reserve Bank Governor for our inflation target, right, which is inflation to target 2 to 3% on average over time. Now, ask any, anyone listening that's an accounting uh, person, they'll go, oh, that's, that's a bit vague. Uh, and it is a bit vague because we don't want to be too prescriptive about it. But, you know, we've got inflation running close to 8% um, on a headline basis and 6.9% and on a call basis. It's too high. Why is inflation at too high so damaging? Well, it erodes cost of living. So it makes spending on the things that you need in your life more expensive. Um, it also slows the economy and generates higher unemployment, basically. So, you know, we need to bring inflation down. We're in a tricky spot because initially inflation went up because of a global supply shock, right? And so the price of goods went up. But now we're in an environment where actually the price of goods is starting to stabilise as supply chains ease and shipping prices come down. But now we've got domestic price pressures that are rising too fast. So they're for things like services, uh, hairdressing, um, your gym membership. My car washing just went up 20 bucks a week, which is extraordinary. Um, and they are domestically generated prices and they're usually connected uh, to wages. So when inflation is too high and it's not because of a one-off shock that we can see, what it's telling you is that demand in the economy is too high. Demand exceeds supply and prices go up. It's the fundamentals of economics, right? So the really uncomfortable reality with the situation we're facing at the moment is the way to bring inflation down is to slow demand. And when we slow demand, unfortunately, somebody has to wear that pain and the people at the forefront of that in this cycle are households and the housing market. So we're raising rates, house prices are falling, residential construction will come off, uh, turnover in the housing market slows, um, and people uh, that have a mortgage have their income squeezed and they have less money to spend on things that they would like. Demand in the economy goes down, 
uh, firms stop putting up prices and hopefully uh, we land in the so-called narrow path to the soft landing, which is you slow demand just enough to bring inflation just back into the band. But that's a really nuanced and tough thing to achieve. And at the moment, there's a whole heap of complexities going on globally and domestically. You know, for example, China reopening uh, and ending their COVID policy is seeing population growth rise faster than we thought uh, it would, which is, you know, adding to demand in the economy, but also adding to labour supply. So achieving this narrow path is no easy task. Um, on our numbers, we've got uh, the Reserve Bank hiking rates two more times. So for a peak in cash, a cash rate, or we call it a terminal rate uh, of 385 um, we think that that's enough to bring inflation down and we think the economy will just skirt a recession, but it requires everything to go right from here. And it does feel like the risk is that demand stays stronger for a bit longer and maybe we need to, you know, um, raise rates a little bit more would be where the risk is and hurt the economy a little bit more in order to bring inflation down. And it's sort of short-term pain for long-term gain and it's incredibly painful for those people that are on the on the forefront of it. Thank you. Um, also just on that, how would you think that this is kind of following on from COVID and how would you compare the way in which our Reserve Bank is treating monetary policy compared to internationally? Do you think that different countries are taking completely different avenues in order to um, control inflation? No, we've actually seen remarkable commonality across advanced economies. And I guess that's not surprising because the pandemic was a global shock. And in effect, it's it influenced everyone to some extent, but the same way. Everyone locked down. Now, for different periods and with different strictness, everyone used fiscal support to help the economy. Again, different degrees and targeted a little bit differently, but the commonality was the same. Central banks around the world eased policy as far as they could, and everyone was impacted by the global um, supply chain and households around the world couldn't spend on services because we had restrictions and all bought um, goods. I mean, I famously bought two air fryers, uh, which is, you know, clearly don't need to. Um, so so that, bit was, that bit was common. And then coming out of it, uh, we had goods inflation that was too high because demand was high and supply was limited and central banks started to to move away from ultra easy policy settings. We also got a vaccine faster than we expected. Uh, so economies rebounded faster than expected. Now here in Australia, we started to tighten a little bit later than some other central banks, but our central bank also meets more often in a year than any other central bank amongst advanced economies. We meet 11 times. Most central banks meet more like seven times a year. So in effect, we waited a little bit longer um, to be sure of what was happening. And then we went bang, 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 bang. And in effect, um, not quite caught up, but sort of closely caught up. And then, of course, there's domestic differences in um, things like the labour market. How, how Our labour market is actually quite rigid in the way that we set wages. So wage growth here is lower than in the US or the UK or Canada or New Zealand, which partly explains why our current cash rate is a little bit lower. The other thing that's really different is the format of the mortgage market. So we're quite unique. We have um, typically about 85% of our mortgage market is a variable rate mortgage. So any interest rate increase feeds through quite quickly, uh, whereas in the US it's about 95% fixed. And they fix out for 20 or 30 years 
whereas even our fixed components only three on average three years. So our transmission mechanism is a bit faster. So there's some commonality and then there's some really important differences as well. Thank you. Um, talking about economic events and crises, could you tell um, our audience a little bit about the significant differences between the GFC and, say, COVID and the sure. impact short term and long term? Yeah, so every crisis, I think, is a bit different. Um, the GFC was effectively a liquidity crisis or a credit crunch that became a real economy crisis, not so much in Australia because the boom in China meant that commodity prices were really high. Um, as some of you might have heard, Australia didn't actually have a recession after the GFC. Um, but elsewhere, this liquidity crunch fed through into the real economy in the US primarily through the housing market. The pandemic was totally different. It was a health crisis, which made it really hard for economists. I didn't know what an R number was or, um, you know, some of those early things that we're talking about were like, I'm, I'm sorry, a what? A reproduction rate for a virus? I don't know what that means. Um, so that was a health crisis. And then we locked people in their homes and closed businesses down that we'd never done before. Um, there was a period there where it looked like a liquidity crisis would come. But one of the interesting things is post-GFC, we're actually quite good at managing liquidity now. So central banks globally went, that's it, we've all got to ease policy. We had quantitative easing around the world to ease that liquidity crisis really quickly. So it was a global health pandemic. We avoided the liquidity crunch, but we closed down and had a real economic crisis. Um, so it was very, very different. Um, and I think at that point, we just had to... Uh, take every bit of learning we had from every other crisis and go, how can we think about this? And one of the things I would call out is, um, you know, we didn't we didn't really know what we were facing. We'd never seen it before. But our economic framework was one way that we could look at different scenarios and help businesses and government through. Thank you. Um, so foreign exchanges, they're a very interesting metric and indicator of the strength of the economies. As a path for an exchange strategist, what are your current observations of globally the volatility in exchange rates and what this implies? Yeah, it's really interesting at the moment. I mean, we've got this incredibly strong US dollar. In periods in the past, very strong US dollar has been associated with uh, financial tension and liquidity issues in emerging markets because they price uh, and issue a lot of their debt in US dollars. So when the US dollar becomes strong, um, that tightening of policy, if you like, of overall financial conditions flows through into emerging markets and it's not always helpful. Interestingly, this time we're not seeing that, uh, which again tells me that we've learned from the Asian financial crisis and from the GFC and we've had a, a better, more coordinated, faster response to where we are seeing um, pressures come through. So I think that's really interesting that it's not playing out the way that it used to. Uh, and then look for the Australian dollar. It's really interesting. We, you know, we run a fair value model that takes into account effectively commodity prices, interest rate differentials, the current account, and a, a measure of uh, risk volatility in the market. And our currency has been running below fair value for one of the longest periods um, ever. Uh, now we think it's going to start to appreciate towards fair value, and, and we have seen a bit of that actually early in 2023. But It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And the biggest influence, I think, this year will be around interest rates and also how commodity markets play out with the China opening, um, exiting their, their zero COVID faster, earlier than expected. 
Thank you. Also looking at what we were speaking before a little bit about is the growing demand for ESG and this net zero target. I just wanted to talk to you about how you see Australia has positioned itself for this transition and whether or not you think what what you think the um, will be the major exports once renewables are so more so much more significant than commodities in the future. Yeah, look, it's a really important and really interesting field and um, I, I think it's great that we're seeing more and more economists really specialise in that. It's quite a specialist uh, sort of field, right? So, you know, I, I think for Australia, um, we're quite uniquely positioned in good ways and bad ways. We have quite a carbon intensive export industry. We also have actually quite high quality uh, coal. Uh, so there's all these sorts of issues around how we decarbonise and, you know, we've had a policy framework that has been um, perhaps a little bit behind elsewhere in the world. And um, there's been more uncertainty around some of the policies that, that we've had. And I think that's made um, it harder for the private sector to sort of work out what, what the what the guardrails are and, and how transition happens. But we are moving ahead in that. You know, we've um, made, made some sort of policy uh, decisions in the last couple of years, which I think are bringing us more into line with sort of global norms. Um, I mean, the reality is for us that what our trading partners do will actually enforce some transition on us, regardless of what we decide to do domestically. Uh, but look, overall, I'm actually, I'm typically very optimistic and I tend to be glass half full. And I feel like this about the energy transition. I think the transition is going to be um, lumpy and a bit disruptive and quite difficult. But if I look beyond it, I think Australia is incredibly well positioned to be a world-class renewable energy exporter. Uh, you know, we have um, the wind in the Bass Strait is some of the world's best wind for creating uh, wind power. Uh, we're a country that has above average uh, sun temperatures and very high quality solar penetration through the middle of Australia. So, you know, we have the highest solar, household solar panel uh, amongst advanced economies. So there's lots that we're doing right. We're also very rich in critical minerals. And we have deep expertise on exploration and, um, you know, getting this stuff out of the ground and using it and um, and we'll be able to export that expertise. Uh, we can use it here domestically, but we can also use it offshore. So I remain very positive about Australia's long-term prospects. Thank you. Um, so looking onto advice and something that you wish you knew when you were at university as a student, do you have anything that you wish you knew? Yeah, so, I mean, there's lots of things I wish I wish I knew. Um, but, uh, you know, Lucy, as we were talking about but before we started recording, I, I guess one of the things I thought I might call out is just value the time that you have. Uh, so, you know, one of the conversations that's coming up a lot for me with my teenage daughters is, did you have a gap year? And I didn't have a gap year and I don't have a lot of regrets in my life, but I kind of regret not having the gap year. And I think I and I think a lot of university students, as they get towards the end, there's this sort of pressure. I've spent all this time and, and now you all have, you know, this enormous hex debt and I've got to go and do something with it. And if I don't do something with it, then maybe the world moves on. But actually, you have time. And I think one of the one of the great things early in your career is of the range of decisions ahead of you, but like none of them are probably catastrophically bad. And actually, as you get more senior in your career, the consequence of the decisions you make get bigger. 
So when I come up now and my point in my career with decisions, there's, you know, there's, it's less, it's less hard to course correct, I think. So I'm sorry, it's more hard for me to course correct. So I need to think through the intended and unintended consequences. And there's just more moving parts and it's harder to reverse that. Whereas I think for you, everything you do now is, is additive. You're going to learn from no matter what decision you make. And if you decide it's not for you, um, you can course correct quite easily. Actually, you're very flexible. Look, in a workplace context, you're not that expensive. Uh, you can move, you can change. And, and I think increasingly in the workplace, we value that. You know, we value people that are inquisitive, that try things. So maybe the advice is not, maybe I'll just call out the time, but the advice is try new things, be inquisitive, but it only works if you recognise when you've made a mistake, right? Don't hide that and go, oh, maybe I'm just going to pretend that didn't happen. I think be brave and go, hey, I gave this a whirl and I learned A, B and C and that's awesome, but it's just not for me and I'm now going to course correct and do something else. And um, and have fun. I mean, you spend a lot of your life at work. So <laughs> in, learn, enjoy, engage, be inquisitive. Um, the world's a great, like weird, wonderful place. So, you know, make the most of that. Go and experience it. Great advice. And so um, one of the things that I'd like to ask is if there are some significant people in your life that have influenced you or which you or have impacted the way you have lived your life and if you could tell us a little bit about why. Yeah, I, that's a great question. I've sort of pondered on that a little bit, um, to, to be honest. So I think um, I think that can change over time. Uh, but I'm going to call out a couple. The first one I'm going to call out is my sister, um, who I'm incredibly close to, and she takes all the buffeting in my life. <laughs> so, um, you know, family more broadly, uh, whether that's your children, your parents, your sibling, you know, I think um, the people that love you, that love you no matter what, and that know you authentically can be a really good sounding board because the choices that you make and the issues that you come up against um, there's a professional element to it, but there's a personal element about who you are authentically and how you want to respond to that, whether it's a, something amazing you want to celebrate, something really challenging or a decision that you make. So, you know, I think that's really important. And friends sit in that as well, actually. Um, I, you know, I just think that's a critically important. Um, the other one that I call out often in these sort of conversations are your peer networks. So we tend to focus on networking up right? Lots of people reach out to me on LinkedIn and, you know, and, and that's that's fine. And please feel free to reach out. Um, but in my experience, um, early in your career and through your career, your peer network is really important. Now, there's two reasons for that. In Australia, the chances are that your peer network will work for you, will be your boss, will work with you, will work for a competitor, or will be a client or work in an adjacent industry that's kind of interesting to be in touch with. So that alone is a great reason to value and develop and maintain your peer network. I've also found it really valuable through my career, uh, not so much necessarily early on, because as I said, I don't think there's such thing as a catastrophically bad decision. But, but more recently, when I've had more senior decisions to make, running that through someone who's a peer is incredibly valuable. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate, uh, for example, you know, I, I have a, a peer who has known me for many years, uh, all through my career. So over a long period of time, I've also worked with him and he's been a client. 
So he's just a great sounding board for me. And then I can balance that out with, you know, my, my, my sister who looks at it more from kind of a personal perspective. And then the third one I would call out is, look, I've always been um, fortunate to have someone uh, senior. Um, and I think there's two bits there that you want to think about. We talk about mentors, and I think that's really important. But to me, that's someone outside your organisation. But I think within your organisation, you also want to have someone, I call it a sponsor, someone that will champion you internally and champion you um, at meetings that maybe you're not senior enough to get to. And the importance of that is it opens up opportunities, but it also gives you air cover to take risks. And I think that's incredibly valuable. And I've been fortunate in every part of my career to have somebody internally that's that's played that role for me. Thank you. Also, we like to ask, have you been reading, listening or watching anything which you would recommend to our audience? Doesn't have to be career-wise, could be something else, but so look I've got to be honest I typically don't read that many um, books related to economics and the like partly because I you know remain quite informed sort of day to day but I did just read something before the summer holidays called Red Notice by Bill Browder and it's a fascinating book about the opening up of uh, Russia and the first private equity uh, and capital money that flowed into the market in Russia and look it's um, it's got a very emotional human side to it it's got a financial market perspective to it um it's interesting from how emerging markets sort of open up in terms of capital and there's also quite a sort of legal outcome um, and really interesting aspect to it so it's got a little bit of something for everyone and a really interesting read so highly recommend it thank you so much thank you for talking to us really appreciate your knowledge and expertise um it's been great speaking with you it's my pleasure and look lucy to you and everyone that's listening i hope you have a a great academic year and uh and enjoy your studies thank you thanks thank you for listening to another episode of bow talks please do follow us on instagram facebook and linkedin at banking on women thank you everyone bye